Thanks, Kristen. It's not every day we get to hear a scripture reading from Zephaniah, is it? Some interesting uh, prophetic words here for us this morning. Weighty. Uh, but I think you're going to find uh, Zephaniah to be a very uh, interesting message for us this morning. Uh, but if you're new and you just dropped in to this uh, scripture reading this morning and are wondering, <laughs> What's going on here at Redemption City Church? We are, we're in the midst of a series on the minor prophets, uh, and the only thing minor about the prophets is their length. We're, we're not in the minor leagues here, okay? These are the major leagues. These prophets are bringing a major message from God. Each has a unique and powerful message for us, um, and it's a message we need to hear today. Uh, Jonah highlighted, if you've been following along, Jonah highlighted God's mercy, um, Amos highlighted God's justice. Hosea highlighted God's love. Um, last week, uh, Sebastian was preaching on Micah, and uh, we learned who is like the Lord, pardoning iniquity and passing over uh, sin. And Zephaniah makes perhaps the most surprising contribution of all by showing us that we have a God who sings. And so uh, that's a pretty unique contribution. Being a child of the 80s, as I was uh, thinking about about a a singing God, I I don't know why, and you guys are, this is going to date me really quickly here. Uh, As I was thinking about this, I was, you know, thinking about the iconic movie uh, Top Gun. I don't know if any of you guys have seen. Not not the new version, I know. Some of you all like the new version, but, but the original version that came out in the 80s uh, was incredible. I mean, the action, obviously, lots of fun. Every boy growing up in that era can remember that. Um, the romance in there, but the soundtrack, man, is absolutely incredible to that movie. One of my uh, favorite scenes in that movie actually is Goose, one of the pilots in Top Gun. He's on the piano, and he's serenading his wife with this Jerry Lee Lewis classic, Great Balls of Fire. If you saw it, you probably uh, can still remember. Maybe you can picture the scene in your mind. It's one of those incredibly endearing, tender moments in, you know, a movie about pilots blowing each other up and, and that kind of thing. And, and, and so it's one of these beautiful moments. And it's one of those rare moments in modern cinema where you see married people actually liking each other. You know, that, that's, that's a win too. But there's, there, there's romance, it's tender, it's moving. And so Goose is on the piano just just singing to his wife, and it's just a spectacular uh, moment. I love it. I always wished I had the gift, you know, if I could just play the guitar, piano, you know, it would be a, be a wonderful thing. Uh, but, but what I want you to see here as we're unpacking Zephaniah, and you're wondering, what on earth does this have to do with the message we just read uh, today? Stay tuned here. Well, while Zephaniah's prophecy is about no human romance, when we come to the conclusion of this book, we're going to see God singing over his people like a bridegroom over his bride. And I think, I'm hoping that's worth hanging in there this morning as we walk through some of the weighty judgment. We're going to come to some beautiful news at uh, the end. But before we get to the singing, let me give you some historical background, okay? We're going to want to set the stage here for this great story. Some of you guys are going to appreciate this, right? We actually learned quite a bit about Zephaniah from verse 1. And so if you were following along in our scripture reading, if you have your Bible open right now and are following, you'll see in verse 1, we get some significant context The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, and then we get this genealogy. He's the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of 
Hezekiah in the days of Josiah, the son of Amnon, king of Judah. And so this is a significant detail here. Helps us place Zephaniah among the other prophets. There have been four generations since Micah brought a word from the Lord during the time of King Hezekiah, who's mentioned in this genealogy. Sebastian got to share a wonderful sermon on the message of Micah last week. If you missed it, you should go uh, check it out. But Zephaniah served four generations later during the reign of King Josiah, uh, when the law of God was rediscovered, and there was an attempt to turn God's people back to him. While God had miraculously saved Judah from the Assyrians during Hezekiah's reign, by the time of King Josiah, even his best efforts really aren't enough to turn God's people back to him. After Hezekiah, uh, some of Israel's worst kings, like Manasseh, reigned, and uh, they did evil even worse than the nations surrounding them. And so by the time of Josiah, he comes and he tries to spark a revival. He's one of those great kings in Judah's history, but, but it's not enough. We read in 2 Kings uh, 23, these words summarizing Josiah's rule that Zephaniah served during. Uh, Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Still, the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel. I will cast off this city that I have chosen Jerusalem in the house of which I said, my name shall be there. So Zephaniah was apparently a part of King Josiah's attempts to turn God's people back to him and also the one to bring this unpopular message that judgment was coming. And so Zephaniah has one theme for his book. It's really simple. It's the day of the Lord. That is the, the big idea as we read through the book. Uh, Isaiah or Zephaniah is unpacking that. He's going to turn that idea around from beginning to end. He's going to be bringing a message about the day of the Lord and its implications for us here. And I want you to see this morning three things about the day of the Lord that we see here in Zephaniah. We're going to see that the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. Obviously, as you already heard in our scripture reading this morning, uh, the day of the Lord second calls for preparation. Uh, Finally, the day of the Lord includes God's singing. So hang in there. There, There's some good news at the end. And my aim for this morning's sermon is that over the litany of our own sins and failures, we would hear our Savior singing over us, and that we could take that with us this week as we step out into the world. And so let me pray as we dive in this morning. Uh, Father, we need your help. Uh, We live in a world where evil, injustice, and violence are far more prevalent than we would like to admit. And it's not just uh, uh, the war-torn countries around the world or third world nations. Uh, It's our own neighborhoods, right? And it's in our own hearts. Uh, The prevalence of sin around us, God, it can can lull us into complacency, uh, God, or it can cause incredible amounts of anxiety as we just reflect on the brokenness that we have already uh, sung about in the world and lamented. And that's why we are in so desperate need to, God, hear a word from you, hear a word of hope, of blessing, to hear you singing over us. So would you help us hear uh, Zephaniah's message this morning? Would your, your spirit apply it to our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
So the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. Um, as you noticed from the uh, scripture reading, um, pretty much without a hello, Zephaniah just jumps in and unleashes a torrent of judgment. So in verse 2 through 3, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I'll sweep away the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So this is a judgment is truly apocalyptic, right? It's a judgment not just against Israel or, or the nations, but against man and beast, everything. Um, it's like an uncreation account. All of the good creation that God made in Genesis 1 and 2, as God makes man and beasts and birds there and builds order and puts them all together, it's like creation is actually being torn apart. I have a little picture from the Bible project on here that tries to capture a little bit of this reversal of Genesis as the world itself descends again into chaos. And that is the picture that Zephaniah wants to conjure up for us, right? Because of the sin, the idolatry, the immorality, the injustice, right? The world is spiraling back into the primordial chaos uh, of the early, before God's creation of the world. And Judah and Jerusalem are in the crosshairs for God's judgment because of their idolatry. They've turned from the true and living God. And so in verses 4 through 6, he talks about how they worship Baal, how they worship Milcom, how they worship all of these other gods besides the true God. Uh, Once you go over to chapter 3, you see a little bit of how this works out in their lives. So chapter 3, 1 through 4, Zebediah says, Woe to her! who is rebellious and deviled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests are profane. What is holy, they do violence to the law. And so Zephaniah, who descended from the royal family, is a direct descendant of King Hezekiah, singles out the ruling class, the priests, the judges, the prophets, and saying they're all corrupt. The institution um, at its highest levels, the elite people in society, right, they've all been utterly corrupted. As we've seen throughout this series, right, their idolatry and injustice has led them deeper and deeper into darkness, right? They, they worship idols. They're, they're feeding their children to these false gods, right? There's shrine prostitution. There's every kind of immorality and injustice such that the social fabric of the nation is disintegrating, right? And so God starts judgment with his people, but it extends as the book goes on to the nations. And ultimately, by the end of the book, the entire earth, right? Notice the terrifying language with which this day is described in verses 14 through 18. The day, the great day of the Lord is near and hastening fast. The sound of the day is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, right? Uh, So we really get about as apocalyptic language as possible for the evil, injustice, devastation that humankind has perpetrated on the earth, right? Why all the dramatic language, right? Why all the rhetorical fireworks here? Um, Why the shock and awe judgment that's going on here? The prophets are trying to get our attention. It's like Zephaniah is like grabbing us by the shoulder and just kind of shaking us. Like, 
pay attention, listen to what's going on. It's like he's trying to shake us out of our complacency and apathy, right? Well, we tend to minimize, right, the idolatry or injustice around us because it's uncomfortable, right? We don't want to deal with the sin in our own hearts, much less the sin around us, right, in in society, right? It's overwhelming, right? But the prophets just keep putting it into our face, shoving our faces into the injustice and immorality that we see around us. I love how uh, Abraham Heschel uh, called attention to this, a Jewish rabbi uh, from a, a decade ago. He said, the things that horrified the prophets are even now daily occurrences all over the world. Indeed, the sort of crimes and even the amount of delinquency that fill the prophets of Israel with dismay do not go beyond that which we regard as normal, as typical ingredients of the social dynamic. To us, a single act of injustice, cheating in business, exploitation of the poor, is a slight. To the prophets, a disaster. To us, injustice is injurious to the welfare of the people. To the prophets, a death blow to existence. To us, an episode. To them, a catastrophe, a threat to the world. Their breathless impatience with injustice may strike us as hysteria. We ourselves witness continually acts of injustice, manifestations of hypocrisy, falsehood, outrage, misery, but we rarely grow indignant or overly excited. To the prophet, even a minor injustice assumes cosmic proportions. They speak and act as if the sky were about to collapse because Israel has become unfaithful to God. Do you see what he's saying? Right? The prophets won't let us saddle, settle for the status quo. They won't let us get comfortable or complacent with the evil or injustice in our own hearts or around us. And that is why Zephaniah keeps bringing us back to the day of the Lord when God will judge the world with justice and make everything right. It's the hope that we all need for a broken and fallen world, which we've already sung about today. and We've already longed for a new creation. Zephaniah is calling attention to that day, a day of great justice, but also a day of great hope. Um, So you may be wondering, when is the day of the Lord going to happen? When is God going to right all wrongs? When is God going to make everything new? When is God going to set everything right? Uh, Time horizons are tricky to identify in the prophets. Is this a prophecy of God's judgment, right, that's going to happen by the hand of Babylon in just a few decades, or is this God's judgment on all the earth at the end of time? The prophets don't always distinguish between events that are near and far, and so one of the greatest difficulties you're going to find as you're reading the prophets, you're wait a minute, did this happen like in their lifetime, or did this happen further out? Uh, One of the illustrations that I've found helpful is to, to think about prophetic uh, these timelines as a set of mountain ranges. I think I have a little picture here of you. If you've ever been to uh, Colorado, if you've ever been to Denver, uh, and you've driven up I-70 towards the mountains, at first it just looks one big set of mountains, right? You're, you're looking across this thing, you're like, oh, I'm going to drive up to the mountains. And then you get into I-70, if you've ever driven back through the Rockies, you realize there's like hundreds of miles of mountains, and there's ranges on top of ranges on top of ranges. And so for the prophets, what look like one event Right, actually stretch out across generations. And so um, with the prophets from a distance, all these, just, all these judgments blend together. But as history unfolds, we see distinctive elements of that judgment unfold in the Babylonian exile in 586 and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And of course, Jesus and the apostles speak of a future and final judgment where God will judge the whole world. 
with perfect judge, justice. So Zephaniah warns us that whatever generation we live, there is no escaping God's perfect justice, which sets up our next point perfectly. If judgment is coming, how should we respond? Right? If the day of the Lord is coming, it's near, it's imminent, it's going to happen, it is inescapable, it is undeniable, how should we respond? Uh, we get our answer in chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 3. And so I want to look here uh, we've looked at so far the day of the Lord is a day of judgment, also a day of preparation. So in verse 2, gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree, ta- decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Zephaniah calls God's people to seek the Lord before it's too late, to seek righteousness, to seek humility. Right? Notice the similarities to Micah 6.8 from Sebastian's message last right. Micah calls us right, to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Zephaniah is saying the same thing in perhaps not quite as memorable of a way, but he's calling God's people to humbly seek him, right? They're called to proactively imitate his justice and righteousness for God's people. Let me, let me remind you too, because justice and righteousness are two of the most prevalent themes in the prophets. Let me remind you what each of those two terms mean. Righteousness, sadakah, and I have these definitions from Tim Mackey at the Bible Project. Righteousness refers to a standard of right and equitable relationships between people, regardless of their social differences. So, so we treat people the same, whether they're rich or they're poor or they're black or they're white. We don't show favoritism. We don't give people certain preferences because of who they come or where, they, where they're from, right? We treat people equally before God. And then justice, mishpat, refers to concrete actions taken to correct injustice and create righteousness, right? As God's people, we are supposed to cheer when righteousness is done in the world. When injustice happens, we're supposed to be people that are against it, that are taking our stand against injustice in the world. And the basis for this righteousness and justice, of course, is God himself, right? Zephaniah gives us one of the beautiful expressions of this in the prophets. In chapter 3, verse 5, he says this, the Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning, he shows forth his justice. Every dawn, he does not fall. I love that, right? If you want to look at what justice is, what righteousness is, we look at our God. We look at his character. And as Sebastian mentioned last week, his character is expressed in his law, which is given for us in the Old Testament. And the prophets are calling God's people back to the law, back to model back to God, the character of their God. When people are patterning their lives after God's righteousness and injustice, they're creating the conditions for human flourishing. They're reweaving the social fabric, right? Zephaniah is saying the injustice and immorality and idolatry, right, is creating conditions where no one can flourish, right, where, where the society is disintegrating, uh, but where people turn to the Lord, where they seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly with their God, they're creating a new society in which we can flourish and grow, and everybody uh, is able to experience God's blessing. I'm hoping this series has made us more sensitive both to the idolatry in 
our own hearts and the injustices that we tolerate too often in our society, right? The, the prophets give us a preview of what's coming, right? We all have to stand before God to give an account. We're all going to stand before him on that day of the Lord, and we're all going to have to give an account. What is the trajectory of our lives? What, what are the weight of our decisions and the choices that we're making right now? Where are they leading us? If we had to stand before the Lord and his perfect justice, right? Where, where does that leave us, right? What is the trajectory of our lives, right? Are we contributing to the flourishing people around us? Or are we pretty much just consumed with our own comfort and safety and our own lives, uh, the prophets cause us to ask some very deep and very uncomfortable and very unsettling questions as we reflect on this. Uh, like the prophets, uh, C.S. Lewis draws this out dramatically in his sermon, The Weight of Glory. It's one of my favorite uh, sermons ever. Uh, but he says this in The Weight of Glory. I, I love this. He says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendship, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. The choices we're making today are leading us inevitably to one of two directions, right? We are either heading towards uh, the kind of people that are going to be immortal horrors or everlasting splendors, right? The choices we're making, the decisions are going to place us either before the throne of God, right? Covered in the righteousness of his son, right? On our way to the celestial city, or they're going to place us right, in rebellion against God on the, the proverbial highway to hell, right? That, that, those are the directions, and the prophets want us to imagine both of those conceptualities, see our life as it were before us, and these two ultimate destinations. And not just our individual choices, the, the prophets also want us to consider the impact of our choices on the societies we live in, or our societies becoming more just and flourishing of societies? Or are they becoming more unjust? Uh, are more people being exploited, more people being marginalized, more people missing out on the goodness of God in our community and society, right? Without righteousness, without justice, right, the social fabric will not long survive in any civilization or culture. So the prophets give us an opportunity to examine our hearts and invite us to consider the trajectory of our lives and society, right? Where, where are we going personally? Where, where is our culture, our, our neighborhood, our city, the people that we know and live and walk with? Now, in previous prophets like Jonah, repentance sometimes led God to cancel the judgment he promised. You know, we love Jonah, right? He goes to Nineveh and says, you know, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And then then they repent. God's like, oh, never mind. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you guys mercy here. It's great. It's wonderful. Uh, but by the time of Zephaniah, right, Judah has gone too far, right? They don't, they're, they're not going to repent. We know. Uh, we see this already in Zephaniah 3 uh, and verse 7. He said, surely you will fear me. You'll accept correction. 
Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were able, all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble the kingdoms, to pour upon them my indignation. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. And so by the time we get to Zephaniah, the prophet offers hope, not that God will change his mind, but that anyone who humbles themselves could be hidden from God's anger. We see that in Zephaniah 2.3. That's the end of that, ver- that verse. Seek the Lord, all the humble of the land, do not com- who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. God will provide a way for them to escape the judgment decreed against them. And so we've got to ask in closing, how does that happen, right? That is the subject of verses 9 through 20. In these final verses, we move from God's severe judgment to the surprising hope awaiting all those who humble themselves before him, who receive his grace and his mercy, who walk in his ways, who, who humble themselves, who do justice, who love mercy, walk humbly with their God. Notice the transition here. It's a breath of fresh air after the, the blast of judgment coming out of these opening lines. Here's what we see in verse 9. For at that time, I will change the speech of the people to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed one, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I would remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcasts. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in and that time I will gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. What a beautiful portion of scripture. The prophets give us a blast of God's judgment, and then we get this beautiful picture of God's love. Notice what Zephaniah prophesies, right? God will reverse the curse of Babel, so that all nations will have pure speech to call on the name of the Lord. Instead of their speech being confused and distorted and rebellion against God, right? right they're going to have this unified speech like Pentecost, the miracle, right, of, of tongues coming down so all the nations can worship 
the Lord, right? The dispersed and exiled will finally return home. The proud and haughty will be brought low, but the humble and lowly, right, will be brought into God's family. Injustice and lies will be eradicated. Israel will sing because God has taken both his just judgments against them and their enemies. And in the climax of this book, God returns as their king to be with his people. As he has promised, I will be their people, uh, they will be my people, and I will be their God. He comes as a mighty warrior to save his people from all their enemies, and he comes last and most surprisingly as a bridegroom rejoicing over his bride with loud singing. You, you just have to imagine, this is where I kind of have goose still in my head, just kind of jamming away in the pan, singing over. But, but this is the picture here. This is a bridegroom rejoicing over his bride, just, just singing, just bursting into loud song because of how much he loves this bride, how much he loves his people. It's a, in an interesting textual note here. Um, I, I want to give you from the commentators, I think this is helpful. Uh, Alec Motier said, most often the Lord's love is expressed by the Hebrew word hesed. This is the love that God issues in commitment, the ever unfailing fidelity of love, love that, will, that lives in the will as much as the heart. Here, however, the word is ahava, the passionate love of Jacob for Rachel and of Michael for David, a love that delights him, a love that cannot be contained but bursts into elated singing. That's the kind of love the passionate love that God has for his people. As we, we come to the conclusion here, right? right God is uh, finally redeemed, restored his bride, right? And welcomed her back into uh, the family together. It's an absolutely surprising reversal of Israel's fortune, right? It's a total, re- total restoration. No more reproach verse 18, no more oppressors, verse 19, no more exile, verse 19, no more sick or lame, verse 19, no more outcasts, verse 19, no more shame, verse 19. God will gather them together as his people. He restore their fortunes and make them famous among all the peoples of the earth, verse 20. Right? So you get this incredible vision of restoration, renewal, God bringing his people back being their king, right? being their, their protector, being their, their husband, and, and singing over them. How is this going to happen, and what does it mean for us today? Not long after Zephaniah's prophecy, the southern kingdom of Judah went into the Babylonian exile for seven years. We know historically, but even after they returned to the land and rebuilt the temple, that return was anticlimactic. The glory never returned to the temple. God never dwelled with his people. They did not have the king in their midst. In fact, they sat under the thumb of foreign empires for 400 years, right? Certainly not the beautiful restoration prophesied by Zephaniah. That would await another day and another prophet who would remove their guilt and their shame once and for all, who would defeat their greatest enemies, who would gather them into his forever family and quiet their restless hearts with his love, who would exalt over them with loud singing, who would bring his perfect justice to the whole world. And that is exactly what Jesus came to accomplish. We leave our guilt and our shame at the foot of the cross because Jesus has paid it all. 
We look to Christ as our king and we look to the spirit as our hope and our struggle against sin and injustice as the world. We join God's forever family with God as our true father and Christ as our older brother. We allow the wonder of what Jesus has done on our behalf to quiet our restless hearts. We, we quiet the accusations of Satan with the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And we ultimately hear him singing over us that we're his sons and his daughters, and he's well-pleased with us because he's well-pleased with his son. And we eagerly anticipate our homecoming when the world will be made new and idolatry and injustice banished uh, forever. As we sang already, we're wishing for all of it to be made new. And that is exactly what Jesus came as our king to do, uh, as the great warrior to triumph over our enemies of sin, death, and Satan, and as our great bridegroom came to do, to win a bride for himself, a people for himself, and to present us perfect and spotless and blameless before him. So what would it look like for Zephaniah's message to be burning in our hearts this week. Let me suggest three things here. First, um, we would be sensitive to whatever God wants to expose in our hearts and in our lives and in the the world around us. Um, What are the things maybe that break God's heart that we see around us? The prophets are here to expose what is hidden. They're there to push on our apathy and our complacency and the, the ways we don't see the world the way he sees it. We need to be sensitive to what God wants to reveal up to us. Second, uh, we'd be quick to repent and quick to forgive, right? That's the message here of this book. Um, God is bringing discipline into our lives, pain, suffering, to get our attention so that we turn to him quickly in repentance. And then we extend that forgiveness just like he has forgiven us to others. Finally, over it all, we would have the soundtrack of God's love for us in Jesus singing over us all week. That's my hope and prayer for each person in the room, that, that it would not be a message of judgment uh, that would be hanging over you, a message of condemnation, a message of fear, anxiety, but that you would have in your ears all week long the message of God's unshakable love for you in Jesus Christ, that that would be the soundtrack for your life, that that would be the narrative that would be going on in your head instead of the, the, the negative feedback cycle that our brains often get caught in, instead of the spiraling that we often go towards, that, that it would be that love, that it would be that song, it would be that voice that would be loudest in our hearts and in our lives. Uh, now, you may say, I have been in the church my whole life, and I have never experienced that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, I know Jesus died for me, but I've never heard God singing over me with loud singing. <laughs> you know, maybe it's been a whisper or a whimper, but boy, to just have that full volume of God's love in my life. I mean, you may say, man, I, I don't know about that. Um, and if you say that, you're not alone, right? The, the struggle is real for us to actually get a handle on just how much God loves us. Uh, C.S. Lewis captured this as well as anyone in the, in the Four Loves Um, And I want to close with this uh, quote this morning. For many of us, all experience merely defines, so to speak, the shape of that gap where our love for God ought to be. 
It is not enough. It is something. If we cannot practice the presence of God, it is something to practice the absence of God, to become increasingly aware of our unawareness till we feel like men who should stand beside a great cataract and hear no noise, or like man in a story who looks in a mirror and finds no face there, or a man in a dream who stretches out his hand to visible objects and gets no sensation of touch. To know that one is dreaming is to be no longer perfectly asleep. But for news of the fully waking world, you must go to my betters. I want to suggest to you that Zephaniah is one of those betters, speaking to us of a love that many of us, right, if we're honest, struggle to understand, experience, or comprehend. But, but Zephaniah is beckoning us in to this kind of love from our Father, a love that is on full volume, singing over us, with the love that he has for us through Jesus Christ that he shed once and for all on the cross uh, in our place. So that we would be a church where people start hearing the music for themselves and that music sticks with them all week long. Let me pray that God would be pleased to do that here among us. Father, we thank you for Zephaniah. Uh, Without this minor prophet. We wouldn't have this major message of God's incredible love for us. We wouldn't have this picture in our mind of God serenading us with 